1 Corinthians chapter 1. God's plan for a healthy church. A study. Did we see the Eskimo baptism by any chance? There we go. I just like that. I don't know why that appealed to me, but uh, it's just my demented sense of humor, I guess. Um, could be like that in Virginia this weekend, I think. Um, for those of you who are guests with us today, uh, we're really just beginning our verse-by-verse study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. After finishing a study through Paul's letter to the Romans in about 175 messages. And uh, we're in our seventh message beginning here in verse 10. And I really don't know how long it'll take to get through these two books. And uh, so I guess it doesn't really matter, does it? It's all God's word. And as we work our way through it, we're always blessed as we read it and as we study it, apply our, its principles to our life. And I hope as on that, on that note that you've been in God's word every day this week. It is the way he's planned for you to read it. If you have not had a plan of reading God's word, let me encourage you to do that as I do from time to time. Take the trifold in the back under the missions map, uh, open it up to today's date, begin reading through God's word starting there in that assignment, and this time next year you will have read cover to cover. And at that beginning stage, you'll find a very richness, uh, a richness in, as added to your life as you understand God's desire for you and the encouragement that comes through it and the holy standard that's up in front of you all the time. Let me encourage you to do that and continue to do that and work your way through. If it's been your pattern of uh, reading to just kind of open the Bible to wherever it happens to open up, um, can I tell you that perhaps uh, you may spend 40 years doing that, and at the end of 40 years, you still may not know where the basic principles and and, uh, doctrines of God's Word are found. You probably have a very hard time memorizing God's Word because you haven't studied it over and over again and repeated it to yourself. You may find a hard time talking about the truth that is God's Word to people as you witness. And so these things are very important. You'll find that as you read systematically through the Word of God, verse by verse, all the way through, cover to cover. Uh, As you repeat that, you begin to get a map in your mind, a mental map of where things are found. It's easier for you to go to certain places that you uh, would desire to show someone else and also to remind yourself. And so let me encourage you to make that a part of your uh, regular time in the Word. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 10, while you're turning there, is an article from the Daily Herald, Columbia, Tennessee, ran about two years ago, went like this. I'm just going to read it to you. Centerville, Georgia. The small community of Centerville has a population of just over 5,000 people, with a total of 48 Presbyterian churches. They also hold the record for the most number of Presbyterian churches in a small town. The high number of churches has to do with multiple splits that have taken place over the years because of one issue or another. Originally, in 1899, only one Presbyterian church existed, simply known as Centerville Presbyterian Church, with about 20 families. The church was, at that time, the largest in the Centerville area. By 1911, the church had grown to almost 150 members, a considerably large church at that time. But a dispute had arisen within the congregation over whether or not the offerings should be taken place before or after the sermon. Thus, the first split took place with the dissenting congregation forming Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church. In 1915, a dispute arose amongst the members of Centerville Reformed Presbyterian over the issue of regulative principles of worship. It seemed that some members of CRPC liked the idea of having flowers in the sanctuary while others objected. As a result, CRPC split and Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville was organized with 25 members. Several more splits took place over various issues between the years of 1915 and 1929. It was in 1931 that another dispute arose amongst the members of 7th Presbyterian Reformed Covenantal Church of Centerville over an issue that no one can seem to remember, nor do any records indicate the issue. Suffice it to say 
There's approximately half the congregation split away and nine people formed Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. Again, more splits took place between 1931 and 1975, when a major split took place with the Presbyterian Church of the U.S. denomination over the issue of merging with the more liberal PCUSA. At that time, 11th Westminster Covenant Presbyterian Church of Centerville voted to remain with the PCUS with the merger. Fifteen members broke off and formed St. John's Presbyterian Church. One week later, St. John's Presbyterian Church split over the choice of the name for the church as several members objected to using the word saint in the name of a reformed church. Since 1975, several more splits have happened, with the most recent occurring this past weekend, two years ago, when a dispute arose amongst the members of 2nd Street, 1st, 9th Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church over the issue of the observance of the Lord's Day. The issue in question was whether or not it was acceptable for someone to check their email on the Sabbath. Those who objected have now split off and have formed, and this is not made up, the Presbyterian, Totally Reformed, Covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo, Communistic, Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. The pastor, Paul Davis, quotes as saying, I think we finally got it right now. PTRCWSRCCAPCC, we now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. PTRCWSRCCAPCC is hoping to grow and reach out to the community. We're up to six people on Sundays now, said Davis. I know that numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little more. End quote. Now the article goes on, and the, the uh, author of the article, who doesn't appear to be a believer, was just simply reporting on the oddity, to say the least, of that whole situation. Now we may laugh at that, and I heard some chuckles, and I certainly laughed my way through that, uh, especially at the end there. And it does seem ridiculous on the outside. And we've looked quite extensively as we work through Romans chapters 14 and 15 at the difficulties that can occur between weak and strong members, which is really the issue here, isn't it? But no matter how clear the scriptures are, there still seems to be a prevailing wind of conflict inside churches. Unfortunately, churches that suffer internal conflict are not uncommon these days. Studies at peacemaker.net indicate that there are about 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. each year, or an average of 50 per day. Also noted, there were about 1,500 pastors leave their pastorate here in the U.S. each month due to, number one, conflict, number two, burnout. George Barno reported that the average pastoral career lasts only 14 years. That's total career, start to finish. And that's less of half of what it was in a study in 1996. Most of our numerous Protestant denominations were formed through not-so-friendly church splits down through the decades, and most of the church splits lately revolve around non-theological issues. In fact, according to Church Conflict Forum, 98% of conflict inside the church is over interpersonal issues and only about 2% of church conflict was over doctrinal issues. Now, as we look at the letter to the church at Corinth, we realize the personal preferences and disagreements are not new to the modern church. And of course, it comes as no surprise, as Paul deals with a number of topics that come back to this issue as he works his way through these two books, that the answers are found in the word as well, and that they are not new, and they're just as relevant for us now as they were then. Now, I'd like you to read with that intro, 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Read in your open Bible with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, and I'll keep you up to date with verse cues if you're reading from a different version. Now, I exhort you, brethren, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Verse 15, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 16, now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's stop right there. And what we're going to do, beloved, is we're going to take verses 10 through 17 as a unit. And this section could easily be titled Splits and Quarrels in the Church. It's a common problem, and it's one that needs to be dealt with. And apparently the Apostle Paul felt that it was the primary problem in Corinth, because that's how he begins his exhortations. The first nine verses in 1 Corinthians uh, states that the identity of the Corinthians is those in position, those who are saints. And so he takes nine verses to explain uh, who they are and what that means, and that's are those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, those who have been granted all of the benefits of sainthood, and he thanks God in chapters 1, 1 through 9, listen, not for what the Corinthians have done, but for what God has done in them. Now you'll notice that's a difference from the way Paul starts some of the other epistles. Sometimes he thanks the Lord for them and for what's going on in their life. But here in Corinth, he is thanking God for what God has done in them, having stated their position. Then he begins in chapters, chapter 1, verse 10, to exhort them to alter their behavior. There's really nothing to thank them for here, so they haven't done anything thankworthy. So he's beginning with where they are in Christ, thanking the Lord that they are there, and then he begins to dive into this unity in the church. Now, what I'd like to do is just kind of back up a little bit and get a running start on this concept. And as it's typical of our study, as we start a new emphasis, as the, as the scripture, and particularly this letter, changes its focus, so will we. And that takes some run-up, if you will, some laying some groundwork. And that's what we're going to do today. So we may not advance very far in the text, but we will advance far in the context of these passages. And so in that respect, we'll be able to continue uh, a continuous flow. I think we could all agree that uh, people who understand the scripture, that people are basically self-centered and, and really uh, that's part of depravity. And I think that's pretty clear as you understand where the scriptures are. Uh, and all of us, I mean, e even those of us who are uh, sanctified in Christ and set apart by justification still have some problems with sin. But people in unredeemed state are selfish, dominated by their own egos, their own ideas, their own goals, their own ideals. Unredeemed people are like that. And redeemed people, in many cases, mirror that to some extent or another. And at the very heart of sin is the capital I. It's always revolving around ego. And so we get to the church, you have a lot of sinners in the church. And as I've told you before, if you were a liar, if you were a selfish person, if you were a gossip, if you were whatever, and you come to faith, you're still those things. You're just redeemed. And now that you have a Holy Spirit residing in you, a tutor, and the, Holy, and the scripture goes to work in your life, the Lord begins to reform you. He begins to do the things to change your behavior and make it come in line with Christ. As Paul says, such for some of you. And he lists off a bunch of vices. He says, but now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're justified. 
And so then he says, so walk accordingly. And so there's always that encouragement. Listen, wherever you were, whatever your background was, the Lord's going to make you new. And he'll do that beginning with grace that's given to you and the Holy Spirit in your life. But when you go into the church, you've got sinners in the church, of course, including the one who stands up here and preaches to you. And we happen to be justified sinners. But we're sinners anyway. And so you have conflict because you have people with desires and goals and purposes and ideals that are generated by their own ego. Now, as an illustration of this issue, James 4.1 does a good job really pinning it down. It says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, James is speaking to the church. Is it not the source, is not the source your pleasures that wage war with your, in your members? So James says that quarrels and conflict come because within each person are strong desires, and those strong desires bump into the strong desires of other people. Those strong desires are generated in ourselves. And that problem finds its way into the church. And tragically, though, they are forbidden by the Lord, and they are totally out of character with transformed people. And though there are absolute opposition to everything the Lord prayed and intended for his church, they still exist. And Satan eats it up because it fosters his attempt to break down and destroy and degrade the testimony of the church. Because, of course, uh, the fractured kind of fellowship that occurs amongst dissension in the church not only wipes the joy off the believer, but it just sucks the foundation out from under the testimony of the church. And God is dishonored, and Christ is disgraced, and Christians are discredited, and it isn't anything new. And that, that uh, letter, of course, that was written there in the paper, uh, I think illustrates that as well as anything else. And so you're going to go all the way back to the beginning, and you're going to find it there in the church. So it's not new. If the church was uh, without problems, we wouldn't have so many letters addressed to it. Okay? So realize that the Lord desires the church to be pure, and so he's going to address these things through those who have written the scriptures. And so you're going to go all the way back, find that this is how it's been at the beginning, because the church has always been made up of sinners, and Satan's always been active in it. And so the problem, as we come to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, is this problem. It's this problem of disharmony and division inside this Corinthian church. And Paul begins these first 16 chapters of exhortation that we have by starting with this issue. And you know, that should give you and I some idea about how important this is to the Lord. Because from chapter 1, verse 10, just to chapter 16, verse 9, and I'm not even taking in 2 Corinthians, he just talks about errors in the church. And some of them are pretty bad. For example, in the first section from chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 2, unity is the topic of purity for Paul. And so he has to deal with errors regarding division, which is what we're going to start with. From chapter 5, verse 1 to the end of that chapter, his topic is purity. So he has to deal with errors in regard to immorality. God's desire for the church is to be pure sexually. And so he, deals, he, he pushes the church that way and deals with the errors regarding immorality. And then from chapter 6, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 11, Paul wants to deal with the testimony of the church. So he deals with errors regarding conflict resolution. And from chapter 6, verse 12, through the end of chapter 7, he deals with the body and marriage and errors in the church regarding marriage and divorce. And then from chapter 8 through chapter 11, verse 1, he deals with freedom in Christ, and so he has to deal with errors regarding Christian liberty. And then from chapter 11, verse 2, until the end of that chapter, he deals with communion and errors regarding the Lord's table. And then in chapter 12 through chapter 14, he deals with spiritual giftedness, in the church and how the Lord has gifted the church to do all the things it needs to do, both outwardly and inwardly, as we've spoken of last week. So he has to deal with errors regarding spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 15, he wants the church to see the reality of faith, so he has to deal with errors regarding the resurrection. And then in chapter 16, he desires to see the church uh, to be generous with material things and sacrificial, so he has to confront errors regarding money. God desires purity in the church, so, and so he brings Paul along to address those things. Now, of all those errors... 
immorality, conflict resolution, the body and marriage, freedom in Christ, the Lord's table, spiritual gifts, resurrection, money, the one that puts, he puts at the very beginning, beloved, and those seem bad enough. The number, the number one first area that the Holy Spirit carries him to is this area of unity in the church. That's the concern, because therein lies the credibility of the testimony of the church, and therein lies the joy of ministry together. So Paul begins with this. Jesus prayed to the Father, John chapter 17, that the church would be one. Recorder for us in John 13, 35, he told the disciples to love one another, and by this the world will know who they are. And a loving, caring community of believers has a tremendous and profound impact on the world. And the Lord knew that. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we see the first century believers in Jerusalem, they had a singleness of heart, and we've named our fellowship on the fourth Sunday night Acts 2.46, because it's a singleness of heart, a singleness of mind, a desire to meet together daily, share a common love, break bread together, and all those types of things which build wonderful harmony and, and unity inside the church, of course, if you come. And so, the idea there is that they shared, it says, favor with people and with the Lord, and then the Lord continued to add to the church daily, such as should be saved. And so the unity and ministry, beloved, are connected. As they dwelt with one another that way, the Lord added daily to those who should be saved, and so that unity and ministry are connected intimately. So Corinth's first need was harmony and unity in the church, and really I see that as a need in the modern church today and the first need we have here. So Paul begins the first exhortation for a pure church and calling for harmony and the end of all quarreling and disputes and divisions, and of course that means Beloved, the end of all, the accompanying backbiting gossip and discord that goes along with that. See? And so I'm going to do my best to study in the study to cover uh, all the issues we need to cover. But we may need a time of question and answer, as we do from time to time. Because as we were in the Roman study, we took time to have a Q&A. And as we were in the Revelation study, we took some time. So if there's anything that's unanswered in your mind after we get through going through this section, please continue to pursue the study further in the Word of God. That's my first admonition to you. Because you've got the same textbook I have, and you have the same resident truth teacher that I have, and so you can continue to study. And if you still have a question, then email it to me so we can address it, and we'll, we'll bring it in a, in a Q&A time. Now, let's dig into the passage. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now, I exhort you, brethren. Now, I exhort you is the Greek word, and you've heard it many times before, parakaleo. It is a derivative of the form of what happens when the Holy Spirit dwells within you, together with you. It's very typical of Paul. This is considered an exhortation, so you see the English words, I exhort you, but the meaning is to come alongside and say. Paul comes alongside, I'm coming alongside and admonishing you, I'm with you and admonishing you. And then he uses the word brethren. And that just simply reminds them that he considers himself their brother in the faith, and it reminds them, too, that they are brothers and sisters in the faith. So both of them, I think, are, are taken in as he talks about that. And just as a footnote, Paul still has to bring the issue up. Just because he's their brother, just because he's going to come alongside and say it, doesn't mean he doesn't have to, as their former pastor and as an elder, follow through with the hard stuff. So he begins with a very corrective exhortation. So he says, now I exhort you, brethren, and look at the rest of it, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now there is the appeal that he begins with in the passage, and it pulls from... Verses 7 through 9. You can see it up there. What's the appeal? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he pulls that just back up to verse 7. He's pulling this from this section. Now look at 1 Corinthians 1 7. So that you are not lacking any gift, we looked at that last time, 
awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that intense desire is really the heartbeat of every believer. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the marvelous benefit of grace in which you're placed in a position where you will never be able to be brought under condemnation. Never. No accusation at all. It's a marvelous, marvelous, overwhelming benefit of being a believer. Verse 9, God is faithful. Now mark this. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into fellowship as a believer, into fellowship with Jesus Christ, his son. So, let's grab that and understand that. God's sovereignty calls us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's obvious. Paul just got through saying that. And the word fellowship talks about common life, and that becomes the premise on which Paul makes his exhortation to unity. A common life with Jesus Christ, a common life with others who are called into a common life with Jesus. And so here's the thing. If we were called by God into one fellowship with Christ, then it should be working out in practice together. That's the issue, isn't it? If we're called into fellowship, one fellowship with Jesus, it works its way out in practice. That's the point. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, first of all, I'm exhorting you on the basis of, watch this, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very important. By our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, listen, by our Lord Jesus Christ and that fellowship, that's the great and primary reason for proper behavior in the church. Okay? So Paul sets the, the bar at the very highest level. The reason why you have unity together in the church is because you have been called into fellowship into one person, Jesus Christ. God called you there, and that should be working its way out in practice. It's the primary reason for proper behavior in the church. Why? Because you're in fellowship with Jesus, and so are in fellowship with others who have called on his name. For anything that's called on the Christian to do, it's the fact that this is what the Lord Jesus Christ desires. That's another way to look at it. If you're called to do something in the scriptures because Jesus Christ desires that, and you do that because you're called into fellowship with him, and so are the other people, and all of you have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. So whenever you see now, whenever you ever see the term name, and you know this because we've talked about this before, whenever you see the word name in relation to the Lord or to God, it just means all that he is and all that he wills, Okay. When we're told to pray in the name of Christ in John, it just simply means to pray consistent with who Christ is and what he wills. So as we've said before, and I've said to you before, when you pray in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean that I ask whatever I want to ask and I just say in Jesus' name, amen, and that guarantees it. Okay? It's not just you just tag it on at the end, a little phrase there that's proper for Christians. It means that I say this, I pray this because I believe this is what Christ would want because this is consistent with his will as I understand it. You understand? So as you go to prayer, it really forms your prayers, doesn't it? If you're going to pray in Jesus' name, then it's going to be in line with all of his will and all of his desire and all the things that make up who he is. Okay? So our behavior as a church and our behavior as a believer has its most direct relationship to Jesus Christ himself. For your life reflects more on him than on anybody else. So Paul says, as it relates to divisions and factions and all the attendant behavior that goes along with that, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. It reflects on him. That's the first stop. That's why it's the most important thing that he's going to address. Everything you do in your life gets back to him. That's the reason for everything, okay? Now, just to briefly shore up that understanding, and just, uh, I'll say the same thing. I'm going to go ahead and write that down if, that's, uh, if you have not, didn't pick that up already. Oh, let's go back. There we go. Look at Acts 20, verse 17. It's right there on the screen behind me. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. 
Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, okay, what Paul's going to do, we're going to skip to verse 28, and I'll just sum up what he's about to say, and you can read it for yourself if you'd like. Paul reminds them of the history of his ministry with them, and he talks about all that's gone on, okay, and then in verse 28 he says this, okay, so he's talking to elders, talking to people who are, are leading house churches in Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Stop right there. Okay? Now, this really goes along, I think, dovetails together with what we just got through saying. So he says to these elders, look, guys, uh, do your job, and if you ever lose your perspective, or you get tired, or you get worn out, or whatever is going on in your life, okay, just remember the people that you are ministering to were purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the overriding element, okay? This is their value, okay? That's how high they are in his estimation, okay? That's their worth. So he says, guard them, oversee the ministry, shepherd them, take care of them, commensurate with how he values them, okay? That's the same idea we have as Paul talks in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 10. He says, you're called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. You have been, I have been, so we interact with each other, commensurate with the fact that we're all together called into fellowship, and it all reflects on his name. First of all, everything that we do reflects on him. So according to Paul, as he starts this really very important admonition to the church at Corinth, he says, your Christian life reflects Jesus Christ. You take care of it in the relationship uh, with church people, this church. That's how you take care of that relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? This local assembly right here reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a footnote, then, the emphasis in the passage is on the local assembly. And I want to make sure we understand that. I'm not going to take this out of context and somehow apply this, uh, referring in some mystical sense of unity or some uh, talking about denominational unity. Okay, that's not what he's talking about, okay? Uh, he's not talking about how we ought to be one with the Baptist church wherever and the Presbyterian church, you know, in this city or whatever uh, else. He's simply saying that within the framework of the local assembly, there's unity. That's the focus. Okay, remember, as these letters are written, they're written to local assemblies, led by elders, and they have instruction, and here it is, okay? So local application. Now, let's look at the specifics of what he says and what he wants them and every other church to do. And there are several things here, and we're going to look at each command separately. Now, I'll tell you that there is lots of application, okay? Um, and I won't be able to touch on all of it and still be able to move forward in our study. We could really get bogged down with all the application. There are hundreds of things that we really should talk about. We won't be able to, okay? So if you have questions, like I said before, please keep reading and cross-referencing, and you'll come to your answer, okay? I won't be able to cross-reference every single thing and everything we perhaps need to talk about in our study in the morning, or we just, this is where we'd, we'd die right here for like three or four weeks, and I think we need to move forward, okay, and just get the big picture. So keep reading. You will cross-reference to find your answer, and if you don't, email me the question, and we'll add it to the questions for Q&A, okay? I keep saying that, but I, you'll see why I'm saying that in just a moment, all right? Now look at verse 10. <clears throat> Here's the next section, all right? He says, I exhort you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, that you all agree. And that, beloved, is a fantastic thing. Did that make you laugh when you first read it? Because be honest, when you looked at it, did you say to yourself, there is no way in the world that everybody in the church is going to agree with each other? Did you say that? But you know, just because we don't think we can do it, it doesn't mean that the Lord says, okay, well then let's just grade on the curve. Let's see how you do it relative to other places. Okay? Have you ever found God accommodating his standards to us in any way? Does he say, well, you know, I know you mess it up, but you know, don't worry, it's not a big deal. I mean, I know you're not going to agree, but I'm not worried about it. No, that violates everything about his character, okay? 
And God said in Matthew 48, 548, through our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's speaking about forgiveness and pardoning people, he says this, Therefore, you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is also. Right? And he just left that standard there, and he didn't ever change it, did he? He didn't come back and modify it because he saw how it worked out in the church, so he came back and said, well, I know I said that, but I understand. Just left it there. And then Paul gets to the end, and we'll see this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says the same thing. And so maybe you say, sure, sure, but we can't do that. Well, that doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't change the standard any. God's standard for the church is that you speak the same thing. You may say, well, we don't do that. Well, then you don't meet the standard. Right? Uh, We've got to be real here. We've got to connect with this on a real basis. We're all to speak the same thing. All right, what's that mean? That's the important, that's the rub, okay? And here's where we won't be able to cross-reference everything, but I think it's important uh, that we look at the things we can. There's a lot to say about, and we're only going to cover some of it, but the key to the idea is in the verse, that you all agree. And the sentence really is very important. It says that you all agree, but the sentence actually in the Greek is ato legete pantes, and that just means all say the same thing, okay? So it says all agree, but basically it gets down to real, it's real sticky, doesn't it? When you get down there where your feet touch it, it's like all say the same thing. So it's not just, you know, agreeing on the outside, and, but really saying something else, right? You get done with a meeting, and then you go somewhere else, and you say, but that's not how I think. Or you get done with a conversation, and you say, well, I'm not going to say the same thing. See, you get to write down, say the same thing, not just agree. So it has to do with what's vocalized. That's, that's a very important point. What's spoken out loud? And for our first stop with Paul, the statement is that the church here in Corinth is to agree in what they vocalize. Because there's very little more devastating to the church than someone to vocalize, well, I don't know what they say or what they teach, but I'm convinced of this. Or, well, I don't know what the church has decided to do, but I disagree. And what happens is, discord is vocalized, see? And then you get people splitting off into little factions who follow whatever. I I want this, and I want that. And that's what Paul's trying to avoid. And so that's why he says, all say the same thing. We've got to say the same thing. Let's make a couple of quick applications from the word, because we don't have much time, but we'll do this. Number one, doctrinal agreement. Doctrinal agreement. Knowing, of course, beloved, that as we just looked at a number of those websites, that only 2% of disagreements occur over doctrine inside the church, and 98% occur over personal preferences. We'll we'll, we'll address it because it needs to be addressed. Philippians 3.16, very good illustration of that. Paul says, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And what was the standard? Well, the standard was the apostolic doctrine which he himself had related to them. He says to the Philippians, look, you know the doctrine you've been taught, now all of you need to behave yourself consistently with that truth. As I've written it down, then align with it. And as a footnote, some people say, well, isn't it good to have someone teaching one view and someone teaching another view? I think it's safe to say from the scriptures that it's good if you want confusion, if you'd like to have a whole bunch of people following different people and doing, saying different things. And that's exactly what Paul doesn't want, okay? And beloved, it's a hard thing to admit but if there are two disagreeing viewpoints, one or both of them are wrong, okay? Because God doesn't disagree with himself. So understand that. And we can also be reminded from Romans 16, 17, a verse that perhaps is more directly related to this issue. It says this, Now I urge you, brethren, same opening words, by the way, as Paul started in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I urge you, brethren, I come alongside you and admonish you, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances, mark this, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Now, of course, we're not talking about little shades of distinction, like whether you're an infra, super, or sub-lapsarianist, okay? 
or you just switch the order all the way around or whatever you want to do and whatever you think because none of those are being able to be proved anyway, are they? And they're nice discussions and we can have them and we can think about the decrees of God and all we want. But when it comes to major issues, Paul says when you speak out loud, you have to say the same thing. All right? Number two. So agreement and doctrine, number two, agreement with leadership. Agreement with leadership. When we vocalize, we need to vocalize agreement with leadership. And there are, of course, always differences of opinion and always differences of preferences, consistently, okay? And we're not denying that. But if we're going to have a biblical pattern, there has to be a biblical pattern all the way. And whether you have a single elder with deacons who serve the church, like Timothy in Ephesus or Apollos in Corinth, after Paul's departure, or you have multiple elders, whatever the case may be, okay, you're going to have a biblical pattern. And you have to biblical pattern all the way. And the church doesn't function in the church if it isn't following it, okay? And so we have to understand how that's all set up. And you may say, well, where does it say we all have to agree? Well, there are a number of good illustrations, and we'll just look up two. As a footnote, there's not much, and I need you to, I need you to understand this. There's not much in Scripture, and you, I think you know this if you've read through the Bible numerous times. There's not much in Scripture in volume in regard to the congregation's role. Okay? If you look through the scriptures, you're not going to find a whole volume of things that tell the congregation what to do. Most of it is in regarding leadership, because if leadership is set up biblically, then the congregation will know what to do. Okay? Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, I think it's up there. Here's what it says. As Paul gives this instruction to a church that's functioning very well, by the way. I might, I'm at it opposite of the church in Corinth. This church in Thessalonians, Paul had a lot of positive things to say. And later... Uh, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he talks about them and how faithful they were to give and give themselves first to the Lord and all the stuff uh, that is commensurate with those who are in unity and those who are, uh, understand they're in unity together with other believers. He says this, But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and, you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. I'll stop right there. Break that down. There are some people over you in the Lord. And that means they have the right to make decisions that regard you. And that word instruction is the word admonish. And then verse 13, it says this. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In other words, these rulers have the right to lead you, make decisions for you in the Lord, and you're to love them and you're to respect them. And the end of verse 13 says, live in peace with one another. Okay, so pretty, pretty clear. In other words, you peacefully agree. You don't stir up things. You don't stir up disagreement. Same instruction we have in 1 Corinthians 1.10. All say the same thing. Okay. You may say, well, some people are going to do that. Well, some people are going to stir things up. But then you look at verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Now you have an elder or an elder trying to lead. This is the context. You have deacons who are serving and helping. And you're going to have some people who are unruly. And they won't submit to the rule. They have their own ideas. They have their own opinions. They have their own preferences. They're all vocalizing them. And they're not saying the same thing. And Paul says they have no right to do that. And you who are submitting are to go to them, and what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do, beloved? Admonish them. Say it out loud, it's all right. It's one of the things you're supposed to do. Remember what I told you, there's not in volume a lot of things given to the congregation by way of instruction. What is given to the congregation is by way of instruction to leadership, following up with and what the congregation is to do. And here's one of those places. You are to warn them. And then Paul adds at the end of verse 14, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So in other words, there's going to be some who doubt. Encourage them. Okay? Uh, there will be some who are weak believers, and they'll be trapped in 
what they used to do before or what they did in another church or some kind of legalism as they've trapped themselves there and they've never done it like this before. And we talked about all that in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Okay, so you can go back and listen to that if you'd like. And they haven't grown yet. Help them. Help them grow. It's not supposed to be a static position, by the way, being a weak believer. Did you know that? Be patient with everyone. Then Paul keeps on going. He says, see that no one repays another for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So some will be wicked. Don't react back to them like that. Okay? Don't repay another evil for evil. Some will be evil. Some will do things they shouldn't do, say things they should not say. Don't repay them. And then to top it all off, the overriding attitude that should prevail expresses God's will. Right after that, what? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And just one more quick passage to emphasize the importance of this issue. And Paul brings it up first in 1 Corinthians 1.10. It's found in Hebrews 13.17. And this, of course, like 1 Corinthians 5, is another thing that's stated to the congregation in relation to leadership. Okay? And it uses an interesting word, the very first word. Hebrews 13.17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So it's really a double emphasis, really trying to, really saying the same thing. Come up under, under them, okay? And the word is obey in context with the other Pauline epistles, 1 Peter 5, that's to the elder or to the elders, to shepherd the flock of God among you, 1 Peter chapter 5, okay? Why do you have to do that? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So those who are an elders over the church, keep watch over your souls. You're supposed to obey your leaders, submit to them, say the same thing. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Why? Because they keep watch. The elders' accountability is to God for you. That's the clear meaning of the passage. And, and there's an accounting to God for each individual church member under the elders' care. And so that's the idea. The elders' accountability to God for you. So there's an accountability between the elder and the Lord someday, an accounting of what went on inside the church and how the elder exercised his gifts. And then there's an accounting to God for each individual of the church under the elder's care. That seems to be the issue too, because here's this last part says, let them do this, let them give the account with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so that really clarifies that for us to make, a, make it personal. My accountability is to God for you. And if you will not follow the first instruction in the passage, then I can do, uh, if you follow the first instruction in the passage, I could do it with joy, that accountability, not for grief, with grief. Uh, for if it's with grief, then that's unprofitable for you. And there appears to be two applications there. It's unprofitable for you after the accounting, because I have to account to the Lord about what went on inside the church. And it's unprofitable because it really discourages the minister. And those of you who've ministered understand that. And so ministry is not being done as effectively as it could be, so the church is losing out. So two ways that it's unprofitable. One, because there's an accounting. One, and the second, because it's just discouraging to those who are trying to lead. And then it follows up with every uh, passage every elder says amen to in this last instruction to the congregation, because we're not perfect and never claimed that we were. Verse 18 says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So it's desire for you to pray that we continue to conduct ourselves honorably, those who are uh, given the charge of the church. And so what you have there in those two illustrations, and we're out of time, so we're going to wrap this up, is you have an elder and elders, that's the text, that's the context, as the case may be, and they rule as under shepherds, underneath the shepherd Christ. And the congregation is called upon to agree with them in what they say. 
and the congregation is to obey them, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Just as it asks a child to obey a parent, a parent or a wife to come up under her husband in 1 Peter chapter 3. Same exact words. There's not to be a group of people saying or vocalizing, and this is the exact understanding of 1 Corinthians 1.10, vocalizing outwardly, to use the word Paul uses, well, I know what was decided, but I'm against it, and I think we should do this. Or this is my view, and then you get this little group having your own view, and you kind of go around making sure you have a few followers who agree, all in spirituality, of course. See. That's in violation of really the spirit of 1 Corinthians 1.10, and also a direct statement of all say the same thing. Okay? There's a lot more here, and it's pretty heavy, as you can see. As Paul addresses this Corinthian church, the very first thing he wants to bring up is these factions, these divisions that are there, and the accompanying backbiting and gossip that all go along with that. And he says, all say the same thing. I tell you, there's no to be no division among you. And we're out of time, but we're going to look at this wonderful passage again next time. It's where the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to start. It's where the Lord has brought Berean right now. And Paul's going a lot deeper than just saying the same thing. He's going to say this. Not just saying the same thing. Listen to the rest of it. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. It's a lot more than just what you see on the outside. And Paul's going to deal with what's going on on the inside as well. And we're going to go there next time as he deals with this Corinthian church and God's plans for a healthy church, his desire to see the church flourish and grow. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We have a few announcements quickly, and then we'll be dismissed. Tonight, of course, I invite you back as John continues his series in the book of Joshua. It's been a blessing to us, and we'll begin to uh, rejoice in that tonight at 6.30. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for Paul's instructions uh, to this church in Corinth. We thank you that your desire is that the church be healthy. And Lord, I pray that you'll just help us connect with this in a way that will be honoring to you. There's a lot of ways that we can react to it, just like the Corinthian church could have reacted to it in different ways. And Paul, of course, will go on in later portions of the chapters to deal with their attitude towards him and, and the interaction that they've had and all the things that are part of and parcel of this relationship of elder and church. And Lord, I pray that you will guide us as we step by step work our way through it. And Lord, as I prayed before I even came out here, all the things that are nonsense, I pray that you'll banish from our mind. And all the things that are true that we've gone over today will seal within our own heart, helping us to seek further this understanding and, and the joy that comes with obeying the simple truths that Scripture has laid them out. And we give you praise today. We thank you for your congregation. We thank you for the people here for whom you shed your own blood through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the redemption that comes. And thank you for the bond that we have. Help our testimony to be in such a way that it reflects well on those who are redeemed. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.